Good, good, be seated. I know it's already been said, but I'll say it again. Happy New Year. Um, I hope that you all had a blessed Christmas celebration and that you didn't stay up too late last night welcoming in the new year. Um, Last Sunday, Justin highlighted some of the great things we saw the Lord do in 2022, how the Lord sustained us with His faithfulness to us, how He opened the Scriptures to us and revealed Himself to us for the classes and the fellowship that we were able to participate in. And for me, some of the specific things that got it done was the radical transformation of one of my sons through salvation, an amazing week at Serve Week with our youth, uh, meeting many new members uh, at MHBC, and growing in our relationships in small groups. I also know that 2022 was a hard year for some, and I hope that in the midst of challenges and grief, that you have been able to see and experience the love, care, hope, and faithfulness of our Savior. The Lord was at work in 2022 and in many ways, and I encourage you to continue to reflect upon what He has done. And as we transition to 2023, I encourage you to look forward to what He has in store for us this year. How is He going to teach us? And in what areas is He going to stretch us? It's a joy and a privilege to be able to preach the first sermon of 2023. A little nerve-wracking, but it's a joy and privilege to be able to do it. And I hope the text this morning will be an anchor text for us this year. A text uh, that will both encourage and and challenge us as we start off 2023. So to that end, would you join with me in prayer? Father, we do thank you so much for your amazing faithfulness and goodness to us as we've seen uh, in 2022. uh, Just for the amazing ways that you've met us. Uh, Lord, we lift up 2023 to you and ask, Lord, that you, as Justin just poured out through Psalm 1, Lord, that you would meet us. Uh, each and every Sunday of this year. Father, that you would open our eyes to see you more clearly and to grow closer to you and to grow closer to one another. Father, that you would be with the classes uh, that we'll have this year uh, on Sunday morning and Wednesday evenings and the various events that will take place this year with with camps, with youth camp, with our first blessings, with thanks feast, Lord, with everything that will take place this year at Miller Heights where we ask your blessings upon it. And Lord, we do ask, Lord, that as we look into your word this morning, that you would remind us of the hope and confidence that we have in you so that we may draw near, that we would hold fast, and that we would stir up one another. Be glorified and honored this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning is Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. The week before Christmas, Justin encouraged us to slow down as we approach the scriptures so that we can think about what we believe. Um, That is my encouragement to you as well this morning. I plan on slowly going through our passage um, so that we can pull out what it says and how it applies to our lives and what our response should be. The last couple of Sundays, Justin has also taught and reminded us of the hypostatic union of Jesus that he is both fully God and fully man simultaneously. The hypostatic union is imperative to our passage and all the other scriptures that we'll look at this morning. If Jesus were not fully God and fully man, then these passages of scripture have no meaning or hope for us. 
So let's turn now and let's read Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25, is a great turning point in Hebrews where the writer turns from the explanation of the superiority of the person and work of Christ to the application of it in our lives and in the life of the church. The shift can be stated in various ways, from doctrine to duty, from creed to conduct, from precept to practice, from instruction to exhortation, all of which mean one thing. The writer becomes very definitive regarding how Christ followers ought to live. In looking at the text this morning, I'm going to break it primarily up into two sections, verses 19 through 21 and verses 22 through 25. Verses 19 through 21 address where our confidence should lie. In 19, the blood of Jesus. In 20, the new and living way of the opened curtain that is his flesh. And in verse 21, a great priest. And in verses 22 through 25, uh, they provide us exhortations in response to what we learn in verses 19 through 21. And that they are that we should draw near to God, hold fast the confession of our hope, and consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. My approach this morning is to take each verse one by one and to intentionally consider what they are saying. Uh, there will be a lot, a lot of different slides this morning, some of which will have noteworthy things that I felt like you might want to take notes on, and others are going to be passages of Scripture that I'm going to be referring to out of Hebrews, but uh, there will be slides to follow along, and Preston's got us taken care of. Thank you, Preston. So let's look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The first word of our passage is the word, therefore. The word therefore prompts us to consider what, we have already, what has already been said, which in preparing for this sermon prompted me to go back and read through the beginning of Hebrews up to our passage in Hebrews 10. And in doing so, I discovered numerous passages that relate to and support our text today, some of which I will reference throughout the message. And I encourage you to take 30 minutes or so to go back and read through the first part of Hebrews and to see how it ties in with our text today. I know you won't be disappointed. The next word we come to is the word since. Therefore, since. The word since used in, is used in verses 19 and 21, and it means in view of the fact. And I'll look at this in more detail when we get to verses 21 and how it leads us into verse 22. So now let's consider the word confidence. Therefore, since we have confidence. Well, confidence to do what? To enter the holy places. Entering the holy places was not something that was familiar with familiar or common to the average person. Entering the holy places was to come into the very presence of God himself. Now the writer of Hebrews is telling us to do something that would usually be done once a year by the high priest with fear and trembling because of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. 
Entering the holy places would require confidence. And thankfully, the writer of Hebrews gives us three things in which we have confidence to be able to enter the holy places, which are found in verses 19 through 21. These verses speak of both access and advocacy. So in, uh, for access, we have verses 19 and 20, the blood of Jesus, and in verse 20, the new and living way open through the curtain, that is his flesh, and our advocacy being in the great priest. So let's look at access. As we consider, as we look at the passages related to both the blood of Jesus and the curtain of his flesh, we will also see they have references to Jesus as our priest, which we will get to in other verses. But keep in mind, uh, these are all related to one another. So let's consider the blood of Jesus. Remember our word, therefore? Well, Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14 is a reminder to us, and it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and sprinkling of defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This passage reminds us Jesus entered the holy places not by the blood of bulls or goats, but by his own blood, which secured our eternal redemption. So we have both access through and confidence in the blood of Jesus. What else do we have access in and confidence in? Well, in verse 20, we read the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. There are several things to notice in verse 20. We should notice the word new, the new way, the living way, and the curtain, that is his flesh. The old way was of the sacrificial system, the blood of bulls and goats, which we just saw in Hebrews 9. Our access has always been a surrogate access, even in the Old Testament and in, even in the New. The access into the Holy of Holies was a surrogate access in which only the high priest could enter, and that was but once a year. The new way was not possible until Christ came. While the new way is also a surrogate access, it is one in which we have permanent access because of the blood of Jesus and the torn curtain. We now have full access for all Christ followers, not just the high priest. Is that good news, church? In, all, in, in the new way, all Christ followers are encouraged to draw near as we will see in verse 22. Notice that this is not only the new way, but it's the living way. Although Jesus died, he lives forever. And where is he now? In heaven to intercede on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25 tells us, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is alive and lives to make intercession for us through his blood and through the new and living way. And finally, we notice the curtain, his flesh. 
The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention the temple curtain being torn. This was an elaborately woven curtain that was between the holy place and the most holy place. No one was allowed to enter the most holy place behind the curtain except the high priest. And we've already noted that he could only do this once a year. And how could the priest enter the most holy place? With fear and trembling because he was coming into the presence of God. The tearing of the temple curtain has always impressed me because the curtain wasn't torn from the bottom up. It was torn from the top down, meaning only God could have done that. Because of Jesus' torn body, God tore the temple curtain to the most holy place so that we now have permanent access. So we have confidence in the blood of Jesus and the torn curtain, his flesh. What else do we have confidence in? Verse 21, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Here's the word since again, uh, which we'll look at in verse 22. Verse 21 gives us the third thing that we are to have confidence to enter the holy places in, and that is we have a great priest. I mentioned how verses 19 through 21 speak of access and advocacy. In verses 19 and 20, we pointed out that we have access through the blood of Jesus, which was brought about by the torn and open curtain. In verse 21, we see Jesus being our advocate. 1 John 2, 1 tells us, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Hebrews is packed with verses referring, referencing Jesus as our great high priest, some of which I've already referenced, but here are a couple more. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We will see some correlation between this passage, Hebrews 4.16, and Hebrews 10, verses 22, when we get there in just a moment. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 26, For Christ has entered not only into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he offered, as as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus is our great priest over the house of God. So we find in verses 19 through 21 that we have both access and advocacy, which provide the dual source of our confidence. See what strength they bring? Jesus is both the curtain, our access, and our priest, our advocate. His torn body and shed blood provide our access to the presence of the Father. And in this access, he is our perpetual priestly advocate. Now we come to the word sense. In verses 19 and 21, we found the word since, which means in in view of the fact. 
So, in view of the fact that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, the new and living way of the opened curtain that is his flesh, and Jesus, our great priest, we must take action. The word since found in these verses compels us to the responses found in verses 22 through 24, which the writer gives us three exhortations. Verse 22, let us draw near to God. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We see in these exhortations both a vertical and a horizontal dimension. Vertical, draw near. Horizontal, stir up one another. But did you notice that all these exhortations are in the plural? Let us. There's a corporate and a congregational view of these exhortations. We will see more of this specifically when we get to verses 24 and 25. So let's look at the first exhortation found in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's break this verse down as we progress through it. So we draw near by acting faithfully upon our confidence in which we just declared in verses 19, and 20, 19 through 21. Because we have continual access, we are to be continually drawing near. It is not only our privilege to draw near, but our duty. Otherwise, we despise the work of Christ. What do we draw near with? We draw near with a true heart. This recalls the sixth beatitude of pure heart pure in heart, found in Matthew 5, 8. There are to be no mixed motives or divided loyalties, but sincere love of God, wholehearted and with full assurance of faith. As we will see in verse 23, it is a faith that is not wavering. The word assurance here is to say what has already been said previously, and that is with confidence, a reminder of where our access and advocacy should come from. Our faith is in the one who is faithful. So we draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Under the old covenant, when priests were consecrated, they were sprinkled with blood. Also, when the old covenant began, the people had been sprinkled with blood. But when the new covenant, but with the new covenant, our hearts are inwardly sprinkled with Christ's blood to cleanse us from an evil conscience. Next, we see that we draw near uh, as, and our bodies are washed with pure water. Some of the commentaries that I read in preparing for this reference this to baptism. So referring to baptism, the writer may be insisting that Christians do not place their confidence in the external ritual, but in the confession of Christ made once in the past as, and evidenced in their baptism and in the continuous inward purification made possible and available by Christ's eternal sacrifice. Baptism, an outward and visible sign of the inner sprinkling or cleansing we have experienced. Other views of washed with pure water view this in the same cleansing mentioned by Paul in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, the washing of water with the word. The cleansing act of the Holy Spirit begins to change us, 
on the inside. Sanctification. So in view of our confidence in the blood of Jesus, the torn curtain, and our great high priest, we are to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We find the second exhortation in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast means to be anchored. Anchored in what? The confession of our hope. This hope spoken of here is a continuous reference back to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. This hope is grounded in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, enthronement, and intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a hope that is without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. We must hang on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for our hope is anchored in our access to and advocacy before God, the Father. Anchored in these truths, we can endure any storm or trial that we face. And the last exhortation is to stir up one another. Verses 24, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And let us consider, what does consider mean? To think about carefully, to be deliberate, to contemplate. And what is it that we need to consider? Well, how to stir up. What does stir up mean? To cultivate, to encourage, to provoke, to foster, to inspire, to motivate. Both of these require active participation. Again, notice the let us of this exhortation. We must be in community with each other if we are to stir up one another. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If we're going to exhort one another, then we must be in close fellowship and relationship with one another. In our recent small group study by Paul Tripp, Paul, stated, Paul Tripp stated, if we have terminally casual relationships then we will have little capacity to stir up each other to love and good deeds. We must know each other to be able to care for one another. We can't have terminally casual relationships if we are to stir up each other in love and good deeds. Let me share with you a story that has stuck with me when it comes to considering how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. It came to me by way of a dear brother named Raymond, who desired to love and serve the body of Christ faithfully, even though he didn't have a lot of resources to serve with. Raymond was an older gentleman who only had one foot due to his struggle with diabetes. He didn't have a lot of money, and his family wasn't involved in his life. One of the things that Raymond did very well was to cook. He often volunteered to cook meats for the church potlucks, and even though it would cost him much in terms of resources and physical ex exertion, he, he always responded, I'm just carrying my corner. 
when I asked him what he meant, he referred me to the healing of the paralytic found in Mark chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. And many were gathered so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he, Jesus, was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Did you see the stirring up of love and good deeds in this passage? How was the paralytic brought to Jesus? By his four friends. And did you notice the persistence of the paralytic's friends? They were committed to making sure that their friend got to Jesus. It required teamwork, each person carrying his corner. My dear friend, my dear friend Raymond knew he couldn't do as much as some others, but he did what he could and so helped carry the burden of the church, which stirred others up to love and good deeds. He didn't carry the whole load by himself, but he carried his corner. This reminds me of the passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that Justin shared with us at our last members meeting. For just as one body is for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jew or Greek, slave or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, many parts, yet one body. Our gifts aren't just for us personally. They are intended to build up and encourage and edify the church. So how do we stir up to love and good works? We do this by verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our meeting together as a church is a vital, has vital implications for us both, both personally and corporately. When we gather as a church, the body of Christ, we get to participate in things that we wouldn't be able to do on our own. The gathered church gets to participate in the public reading of Scripture, the preaching of the Word, praying for one another, and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we will share in shortly. As a gathered church, we get to share in the public reading of Scripture. 1 Timothy 4.13 says, Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. God's word unites God's people. Deep covenantal undertones accompany the reading of Scripture. God has chosen to speak to his people, those he calls by his own name. The simple act of listening to God's word with a shared commitment to believe and obey it binds the church together. As we hear God's word read, we should consider how to stir up one another. When we gather, we get to hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. When we gather, we, the church, get to hear the same message at the same time. We should be listening for how we can use the teaching to edify and encourage one another. We should consider what application we can make of the message to our lives, both personally and corporately. 
Again, as we listen to the preaching of the word, we should be, consider, we should be considering how to stir up one another. When we pray, when we gather corporately, we get to pray together. We see in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us to pray in the first person plural. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Acts 2.42 tells us that the early church devoted themselves to prayer. Acts 4.24 says that they lifted up their voices together to God. In 1 Timothy 2.8, Paul instructs that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Notice that in this verse, prayer requires reconciliation with one another. A church committed to prayer is one that will work to root out division. Gathering corporately, we get to celebrate in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. When we celebrate in baptism, we share in part in committing to those being baptized that we will support and encourage them. It's also hard to make a public profession of faith through baptism if no one is there to participate in the celebration. Likewise, through the Lord's Supper, we are encouraging each other to remember the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Our gathering together is imperative to sustaining our faith and encouraging one another. Left to ourselves, we will forget that as Christ followers, our our identity is in Him and His finished work on the cross. We will forget that our confidence is in the blood of Jesus, the new and living way of the open curtain, His flesh, and Jesus, our great priest. Again, as Paul Tripp has stated, we are identity amnesiacs. And that corporate worship is designed to remind us of our identity in Christ so that we don't waste our time looking for identity elsewhere. As Hebrews 10.25 states, as is the habit of some. While this verse doesn't mention church membership specifically, I think it speaks to the importance of not forsaking meeting together in the context of the church. I know that our elders understand this to be true, and I am so thankful that they take this passage seriously. I'm thankful for our elders who understand and foster within the church the importance of membership and what it means as stated in our church covenant to to one another. And this is evidenced by our reading of the covenant at at our members' meetings when we gather. This is also evidenced by the care and effort that our elders take in prayerfully and intentionally pursuing the members of this body who, while they say they regularly attend Miller Heights or are members of Miller Heights, are not regularly attending or with whom you or I have had no contact with. They are intentionally, they are intentional in caring for those placed in their care. What a blessing and what an encouragement to know that we are loved and cared for so well. Not not neglecting to meet is more than just attending church on Sunday. Again, Tripp says, the Sunday gathering should be a celebration of the intense community that uh, has been encountered between Sundays. It is not supposed to be the moment each week where you get your community. We should be applying Hebrews 10, 25 by encouraging one another throughout the week and not just on Sundays. Again, one of my big takeaways from the series that we just did in our small groups on small group community is the description of God's design for relationships. God has called us to have intentionally intrusive, 
Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive relationships. Intentionally intrusive. We must be both intentional and intrusive with each other. Christ-centered, a reminder of Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 21. Grace-driven, being reminded of the grace which, which we have received so that we can extend grace to others. And redemptive, seeking to restore, not to remodel, but to restore that which has been broken. We need to be regularly encouraging each other in these glorious truths that we have both access and advocacy to the Father, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is a reference to the coming day of Christ's return and judgment, often referred to as the day of the Lord. One of the references for this phrase, the day of the Lord, is found in Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. And when the day of the Lord is referenced in the Old Testament, it was speaking of a day of judgment, a forthcoming punishment for not being faithful. Thankfully, those who are in Christ rest in and trust in His faithfulness and not our own. Hebrews 19 through 21 gives us the confession of our hope. Other references speak of the fact that the day of the Lord, um, on the day of the Lord, what we have done and how we have lived our lives will be revealed. Another reference reminds us that although the day of the Lord will come at an unknown time, there will be warning signs. There are also two verses provided as references that I'll share here to provide us with hope in view of the day of the Lord or that day. And they are 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. For I know who I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard unto that day what has been entrusted to me. And Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The Lord will guard what he's entrusted us with. That is the faith that he has given us. Um, He is the one who started the work and in us and will be faithful to bring it to completion. These verses give us a great deal of encouragement. In closing, I want to remind us of where our confidence, where we find our confidence. That is in the blood of Jesus, the new and living way of the open curtain, and our great priest. So in view of the fact that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the, blood of the Je- by the blood of Jesus, the new and living way of the open curtain, and Jesus our great priest, we must take action. We should both individually and corporately draw near to God, hold fast the confession of our hope, and consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. As we encourage each other in these things, as we see the day of the Lord drawing near, Hebrews 9, 28 provides us with a final encouragement. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What struck me from this verse was the word eagerly. Are you eagerly waiting for him? In view of the fact that we have both access and an advocate to enter the holy places, Do you eagerly and daily draw near to him through prayer and through the reading of his word? Do you eagerly hold fast the confession of your faith? Do you eagerly look for ways in to stir up one another to love and good works? 
Do you eagerly look forward to our corporate time of worship together? In view of the fact that God has called us to have intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive relationships, do you eagerly and intentionally contact fellow brothers and sisters throughout the week? And do you eagerly think about who might be falling away and looking for ways to encourage them in their walk? I hope and pray that you are for the glory of Jesus and for his church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that you have made access and provided an advocate for us through your son Jesus, through his shed blood for us, through the torn curtain that is his flesh, and through our great priest. Lord, what an amazing Savior you are. How good you are, Lord. So in view of the fact of these things, Lord, may you prompt us and encourage us to, hold, to draw near to you, Lord, to hold fast the confession of our faith and to stir, look for ways that we can stir up one another. Lord, be, may you be glorified and honored in your church and uh, may you do in our lives only what you can do. Thank you for, again, your word to us and for this time together. In Jesus' name.